I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we compare and contrast the themes of the themes of the Bible to discover passages that are connected together in subtle and often overlooked ways. The book of Numbers is a revelation of man. It is a deep dive into our nature, our hard hearts, our lustful tendencies, our pride and arrogance, our reliance on fear to determine our course, our lack of faith, and our lack of faithfulness, our treacherous nature as we shift back and forth from opinion to opinion. The picture that the book of Numbers paints of humanity is not a pretty picture. This book provides the foundation for the judgments that all mankind are to receive. Even those who hold up the laws their guideposts will inevitably fail, and when we do, it is only death that awaits us. Because our nature is so treacherous, we are unable to remain faithful to what we say in and of ourselves. We are unable to live up to God's Torah in and of ourselves. And by treacherous, I don't mean Korah treacherous, but rather treacherous like the sea. And it is this treacherous nature that has been on display in the recent chapters of the book of Numbers. Week after week we have read of Israel, this people who was redeemed and brought near to Hashem as a bride to a husband, has instead acted treacherously toward her husband. And this is us. This is us as humans. And this week we read the culmination of these stories. But wait, you say, Israel is still in the wilderness. We're only halfway through the second part of the book of Numbers. Yes, and that should clue us in. Because we are not only exactly halfway through the second portion of the book of Numbers, we are also exactly halfway through the entire book of Numbers. This chapter is the central chapter of the book of Numbers when you examine it chiastically. Contrary to our modern Western culture expectations of literature, Ancient Eastern literature does not contain the highlight of the text near the end. Rather, the most important parts of biblical texts are always found in the center. And so it is that we encounter the focus of the book of Numbers. The culmination of every rebellion of the people up to this time and even to come. We have caught hints of this rebellion through the text as we have approached this chapter. Israel is the place where we want to be. It is the place of good from chapter 11. Are we not important and used by God too? These very words spoken by Aaron and Miriam in chapter 12. We cannot take the land. The enemy is too fearful and powerful from chapter 13. We should return to Egypt. 
We should appoint our own leaders to bring us back from chapter 14. Even the tendency to reject the judgment of God from the end of chapter 14. And yet running throughout this is the unspoken tension between the sons of Aaron and those who wished to be priests because it was a place of honor and respect. All of this and more is represented in this chapter, and in this chapter we get a clear picture of something that exists throughout Scripture from one end to the other in another way. So let's read this chapter, and then let's dig in to this chapter. Numbers chapter 16. And Korach the son of Yetshar, the son of Kahat, the son of Levi, took both Datan and Avaram, the sons of Eliav, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuven. And they rose up before Moshe with some of the children of Israel, two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation, called ones of the meeting, men of name. And they assembled against Moshe and against Aaron and said to them, Enough of you, for all the congregation is set apart, all of them, and Hashem is in their midst. Why then do you lift up yourselves above the assembly of Hashem? And when Moshe heard this, he fell on his face and spoke to Korach and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning Hashem shall make known who is his and who is set apart, and bring him near to him, and let him bring near to him the one whom he chooses. Do this. Take fire holders, Korach and all your company, and put fire in them and put incense in them before Hashem tomorrow, and it shall be that the one whom Hashem chooses is the set-apart one. Enough of you, sons of Levi. Moshe said to Korach, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it little to you that the Elohim of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to perform the service of the dwelling place of Hashem, and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? Yet you seek the priesthood as well? Therefore you and all your company are set against Hashem. And Aaron, what is he that you grumble against him? And Moshe sent to call to Datan and Avaram, the sons of Eliav, but they said, We are not coming up. Is it little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you would also seize total rule over us? Also, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you bore out the eyes of these men? We are not coming up. And Moshe became very displeased and said to Hashem, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. Then Moshe said to Korach, Tomorrow you and all your company shall be there before Hashem, you and they and Aaron, and take each one his fire holder, and you shall put incense in it, and let each one bring his fire holder before Hashem, two hundred and fifty fire holders, and you and Aaron, each one with his fire holder. So each one took his fire holder and put fire in it and laid incense on it and stood at the door of the tent of appointment with Moshe and Aaron. And Korach assembled all the congregation against them at the door of the tent of appointment. Then the esteem of Hashem appeared to all the congregation. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from the midst of this congregation and let me consume them in a moment. But they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, are you angry with all the congregation? And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Move away from around the tents of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. 
So Moshe rose up and went to Datan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Please turn away from the tents of these wronged men. Do not touch whatever belongs to them, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Then they moved away from around the tents of Korach, Datan, and Abiram. And Datan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, with their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moshe said, By this you know that Hashem has sent me to do all these works, that they are not from my own heart. If these die as all men do, or if they are visited as all men are visited, then Hashem has not sent me. But if Hashem creates what is unheard of, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down into Sheol alive, then you shall know that these men have scorned Hashem. And it came to be, as he ended speaking all these words, that the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korach, with all their goods. And so they and all those with them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were round about them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And a fire came out from Hashem and consumed the two hundred and fifty men who were offering incense. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Say to Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to pick up the fire holders out of the blaze, for they are set apart, and scatter the fire some distance away. The fire holders of these men who sinned against their own lives, let them be made into beaten plates as a covering for the altar, because they brought them before Hashem, therefore they are set apart and let them become a sign to the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took the bronze fire holders, which those who were burned up had brought, and they were beaten out as a covering on the altar, a remembrance to the children of Israel, that no stranger who was not of the seed of Aaron should come near to offer incense before Hashem, and not be like Korach in his company, as Hashem had said to him through Moshe. But all of the congregation of Israel grumbled against Moshe and against Aaron on the next day, saying, You, you have killed the people of Hashem. And it came to be when the congregation assembled against Moshe and against Aaron, that they turned towards the tent of appointment, and see the cloud covered it, and the honor of Hashem appeared. And Moshe and Aaron came before the tent of appointment, and Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Arise from the midst of this congregation, and let me consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces. So Moshe said to Aaron, Take the fire holder and put fire in it from the altar, and lay incense on it, and go, hurry to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from Hashem, the plague has begun. And Aaron took it as Moshe commanded, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and saw that the plague had begun among the people, and he laid on the incense and made atonement for the people, and stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. And those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korach. Then Aaron returned to Moshe at the door of the tent of appointment, for the plague had stopped. There is in the heart of man a dichotomy, a nature that is revealed on the very first page of the Bible. On the sixth day of creation, there were two things that were created, the man and the beast. These two kinds of creatures placed in opposition to each other. The beast, a creature that lives and operates on instinct, a creature that seeks constantly to satisfy their desires, a creature that does not work but that lounges all day, a creature that has no shame. 
and over the beast man was given charge, to rule and to reign. Genesis one twenty eight. And Elohim blessed them, and Elohim said to them, Be fruitful and increase, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the creeping creatures of the earth. And as the garden experience progressed, it was revealed that man and beast cannot be equals. There was no companion for the man in the garden among the beasts. And so a counterpart was created, not from the dust or from other creatures. A counterpart was created from man himself. And so in Genesis 3, when the beast came to Eve, and rather than ruling the beast, she gave in and accepted the prompting of the beast. Follow your instincts. Do what feels right. Eat the tasty fruit that you desire. And then Adam followed suit and allowed the beast to gain a place in his mind. And since that day, the beast has been a part of each of us. We were created to be separate from the beast, to rule over the beast, and instead we became the beast ruled by passions and feelings and instincts, seeking to fulfill our lusts from moment to moment. And it is this nature that we are all born with, and it is this nature that we must put to death. As time progressed through the ages, as the biblical narrative unfolds, we find that this is a motif that found underlying much of what we read. Abraham, who has been promised to be made great instead, listens to his wife, and takes the slave girl. He acts in fear and instinct for preservation of his family line. He uses his position of power, and he takes of the proverbial tree at his wife's request. Isaac has two sons, one described as hairy and hunter and who lives in the field, language of a beast, the other described as smooth, deceptive, and whose head was being crushed at birth, language of a serpent both of them beasts who were pitted against each other. In Egypt, Israel is characterized as swarming creatures. Often this motif is expounded on simply by calling out the animals in the midst of the people. Simeon and Levi at Shechem being an example. Pride and anger leading them to become predators of innocent people. Or even the story of Jonah when it mentions not only the people of Nineveh, but also their beasts. The people of Nineveh were no better than beasts, and yet they repented, and so did their animals. These are just a few examples, and frankly, this is the low-hanging fruit on this subject. This study is one that is extremely in-depth and can take some time. So why do I bring this up? Because recognizing this motif and then expanding on it, it leads us to recognize something extremely important that is happening in this chapter. It reveals the nature of the beast that is within us, as do the previous chapters that we have read. But this chapter, it also contains in it the seeds of the beast system that we will read of later in Scripture. For now, let's turn to number 16 and discuss some of the specifics of the story of the rebellion of Korah before we turn back to this motif that is being explored here. As the chapter opens, we read of the leaders of the rebellion. There is Korah, who is a cousin of Moses, a, a Levite, but not a priest. One who, like Aaron and Miriam, had a familial bond to Moses. One 
who, like Aaron and Miriam, gets puffed up with his own importance, because Hashem has made all of the people holy. In verse 3, this is the reason that Korah gives as the initial reasoning for his rebellion. We are all holy, so why do you lift yourself up, Moses? The exact same argument of Aaron and Miriam from chapter 12. Alongside Korah, there are several sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the tribe that should have had the role as leaders and priests in Israel, the tribe that was skipped over by Jacob himself. You see, this rebellion was not something new. This is something that had been brewing for centuries. It's only now that the rebellion that was present in the hearts of these men found its opportunity. And alongside these ringleaders were 250 other men, each of them important, honorable, and a leader in the community. And in this first accusation that is leveled against Moses, we find the test that was contained in the countermeasures of the previous chapter. As we discussed last week, what was it that was symbolized by the tzitzit? They were a cultural and even a religious symbol that encompassed the entire community. The simple fact that everyone was to wear tzitzit was a declaration that everyone in the community of Israel had honor. And the composition of the tzitzit, something that we never read of in the Bible, but that we have many, multiple examples from archaeology and Jewish sources, the composition of the tzitzit, of white linen threads and a blue thread of yarn, speaking of the holiness of everyone in Israel. And this was the trap. For some, this giving of honor and this recognition of the holiness that had been granted to them was an area of pride. It fed the seeds of pride and expectation that was already in their hearts, and it caused them to bring it out in an attempt to exert their own perceived authority and honor, to claim what they saw as rightfully theirs. And to this, Moses once again falls on his face. In response to their pride, Moses exhibits humility, and he responds to them with another test. If you believe yourselves to be holy, and if you believe yourselves capable of worshiping Hashem as a priest in his tabernacle, then by all means, bring some incense near to Hashem tomorrow morning. We'll see if he accepts you as his priests. And then Moses addresses specifically the Levites. Is it not enough that you have been brought into service of Hashem to touch the holy things and to interact with his tabernacle, to the, be the bodyguards of this holiness? You have already been separated above and beyond the rest of the congregation, and despite all of this, you would seek to be elevated to the position of priests. Who is Aaron that you would grumble against him? What has Aaron ever done to you but obey the voice of Hashem? Then Moses addresses the sons of Reuben, those with a measure of authority already, those who sought to supplant him as the leader of the people. These men respond that they will not even come to defend themselves to Moses. They'd been promised to be taken to a land of milk and honey. They'd been promised an inheritance in that land. And now they're being promised that they would die out here in the wilderness. This was their fear from the beginning. Over and over they had said, Did you bring us out here to kill us in the wilderness? And now their great fear is being realized. The prophecy that they continually spoke over themselves has come to pass. And it's Moses' fault. Not theirs, of course. This action, this refusal by the sons of Reuben to come to Moses, it's a shaming action. 
and Moses goes before the final party represented in this rebellion, Hashem himself. You see, Moses is angry at their refusal. They have shamed him, and most of all, they have shamed Hashem. And so he asks Hashem not to accept the offering that they're going to bring him. He himself, he has done nothing to harm them, and they have no grounds to stand on to accuse him. And so just as happened when Aaron and Miriam slandered Moses, everyone involved is invited to come and to stand before Hashem in the tabernacle. Aaron, Korah, and his entire company. And everyone that was in rebellion, everyone that wished to supplant their brothers in a position of leadership, was to bring a censer filled with incense on it and come and burn incense before Hashem. And so they all gather before Hashem at the door of the tabernacle, and just as with Aaron and Miriam, the glory of Hashem appeared to the congregation to stand in judgment. And Korah gathered with him all of the congregation of Israel to see this. He wanted the congregation to witness his victory over Moses and Aaron. In verse 20, once again, Hashem tells Moses to leave the congregation alone so that he can consume them all in one fell swoop. This is something that we've seen Hashem threaten twice before in Exodus 32 and in Numbers 14. And once again, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, as he has done before, this time with Aaron at his side. And they make a claim on Hashem's character just before, and this time they call on his justice. Would you punish the entire congregation for one man's sin? And once again, Hashem relents and simply tells them to get back from the tents of these rebels. And in verse 26, we read something that is interesting. The warning that Moses gives to the people. This is a warning that we read elsewhere in Scripture. Come out from among them and touch nothing of theirs. In other places in Scripture, we read this same command when the time of judgment comes upon the wicked and the rebellious. Isaiah 52, 9-12 says, Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Hashem shall comfort His people. He shall redeem Jerusalem. Hashem shall lay bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Turn aside, turn aside. Come out from there, touch not the unclean. Come out from her midst and be clean, you who bear the vessels of Hashem. For you shall not come out in haste, nor go in flight. For Hashem is going before you, and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Paul echoes this statement in 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18. He says, And what union has the dwelling place of God with idols? For you are a dwelling place of the living God, as God has said. I shall dwell in them and walk among them, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says Hashem, and do not touch what is unclean, and I shall receive you. And I shall be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says Hashem Almighty. This warning that those who are true to Hashem should not become entangled in the affairs of unrighteous men. And it is this warning that we will hear once again, Revelation 18, 1-4. And after this I saw another angel coming down from the heavens, having great authority, and the earth was lightened from his glory. 
And he cried with a mighty voice, saying, Babel the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, and a haunt for every unclean and hated bird. Because all of the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her whoring, and the kings of the earth have committed whoring with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the power of her riotous living. And I heard another voice from the heavens saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. And in verse 24 and 27, we find something interesting in the text that is missing from English translations. The English says, They moved away from the tents of Korah. The Hebrew, however, says they moved away from the Mishkan of Korah. Now, Mishkan is a word that's used for the tabernacle. Now, there's likely nothing of significance here because this word simply means a dwelling place. It is used in other places to refer to the dwelling places of others. Ezekiel 25.4 Therefore see, I am giving you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings, Mishkan, among you. And they shall eat your fruit, and they shall drink your milk. Or Isaiah 22.16, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a grave here, as he who hews himself a grave on high, inscribing a mishkan for himself in the rock? A resting place. And Job 21.28, For you say, Where is the house of the nobleman, and where is the tent, the mishkan, the dwelling place of the wrong ones? Now, since this word is used to refer to simply any dwelling place, then there may not be anything happening here with the use of the word here. However, Mishkan is what is at stake here. In verse 9, this word is used to speak of the tabernacle. It could be that this is speaking of Korah setting up his own tabernacle and setting up his own means of worship. Or it could be that we should see this as the dwelling places of the wicked being torn down, as we read of in Isaiah and in Revelation. This is, in fact, how it's used in Second Corinthians 6. And because we see it used in these other ways, in these other places, I think that we should continue in that vein, rather than forcing something else to fit that may not fit. The command is to leave the place that the wicked dwell, so that you don't share in their judgment, just as with Sodom, and just as with Babylon. Just after this, Moses gives the people a sign. If these men die, even if they die in this moment by any means, then Hashem has not sent me. There is only one judgment that can take place on these men that will confirm that Hashem has chosen me. If the earth opens up and swallows them and they enter Sheol, the place of the dead, alive, then you will know that Hashem has sent me. And as soon as Moses finishes, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and his followers and all of their belongings. Again, there's something that we read of later in scripture that can help us to apply some louder symbols to this narrative. Revelation 19, 20-21 And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he led astray those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And the 250 men who were offering incense at the tabernacle 
Well, they were consumed with the fire that came from Hashem, perhaps a sword that came from his mouth. You see, these men, they should have remembered what happened to the two men who had been authorized to burn incense before Hashem, and yet they did so in an unauthorized way. Here, they were unauthorized people. I mean, there were men who were holy, sure, but they had not been anointed with the holy oil. They had holiness only from proximity and association with Hashem. They did not have the same level of holiness that came with the anointing, or even with the sprinkling of the anointing oil. And while they could wear shatnez tzitzit, they could not wear garments of shatnez like the priests were able to, or commanded to. Revelation 20, 9-10 And they came up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the holy ones and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of the heaven and consumed them. And the devil who led them astray was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. Then they shall be tortured day and night forever and ever. A fire coming from heaven to consume those who follow the dragon and the devil thrown alive into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. Now what happens to the censors these men use is of particular interest. I'm not so sure that what these men received, that it was judgment per se. What happened to Korah and the others who were swallowed, that was judgment. I think what happened to these 250, it's something else. I believe what happened to them was that they came too close to holiness without being brought into alignment with the super-concentrated holiness of Hashem. You see, everyone who interacted with the holy things, from the high priest on down to the Levite that loaded the curtains on the cart, they went through a ceremony. In that ceremony, they had a measure of holiness imparted to them based on their levels of interaction with Hashem's concentrated holiness. Coming into contact with Hashem's concentrated holiness without first being prepared to do so will lead to death. Just as plunging into the sea or approaching radioactive material without the proper protective gear will lead to death. Not as judgment, but as a natural side effect. It's a natural consequence of taking actions that are inherently dangerous. These sensors, they had come into contact with that holiness as well, and so they had contracted holiness. And so they too could only be used for one purpose, the worship of Hashem. These censors were to become a warning sign to all others. Do not attempt to approach the holiness of Hashem without being authorized. Your death will be on your own head if you make the attempt. The next day, then, we find a similar situation to the end of chapter 14, when the people doubled down on their sin by attempting to take the land after being forbidden the land. The people didn't understand. They don't get the judgment that they had just witnessed and they begin to grumble against Moses and Aaron once again. You have killed the people of Hashem. Again, there must be someone responsible, and it can't possibly be those who died. They were good people. We can only blame those who are still alive. And once again, the people gather at the Tent of Meeting to enter into judgment against Moses and Aaron. And once again, the glory of Hashem appears to enter into judgment against them. And once again, Hashem threatens to completely wipe out the people. And once again, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces. But this time, the plague begins before Moses and Aaron are able to do anything about it. 
And to this, Moses tells Aaron that he must be the one to intercede. Because this time, with the plague already begun, there will be no convincing Hashem to withhold his judgment. This time it will take an act of atonement to prevent this plague from destroying all of the people. And so Aaron rushes, he grabs a censer, he fills it with fire and incense, and Aaron runs to the place where the plague is running rampant. And it says that Aaron stands between the dead and the living to make atonement for them. In this we see clearly the role of the intercessor, to stand between the living and the dead, and to forestall the righteous judgment that is due to a sinful and rebellious people. To hold back the judgment of Hashem, so that we are not consumed by simply being in His presence. And that is the end of this rebellion. Now there are a few things that I would like to go back and to cover in this chapter. The first is something that I'm going to touch on for now, but that we'll examine much more fully next week. That is the progression of the stages of grief that we encounter in this narrative. Two weeks ago, I introduced this thought, and this week we find that it continues, but it does not end. What is the first stage of grief? Well, denial. We saw this two weeks ago as Israel denied the judgment that had been leveled against them. Rather than accepting their fate of death in the wilderness due to their lack of faith, they decided to act in denial and attempted to take the land away, without Hashem being with them. This week we encounter the next two stages of grief. And first off is anger. And it's anger that we find motivating the rebellion. Anger at Moses and Aaron for elevating themselves. Anger at not getting what they had been promised. That anger fueling their desire to overthrow the suppressive regime that they had found themselves under. The next step that we discover this week is the stage of bargaining. Now bargaining, that may be a bit too vague. So we can better understand this step as a justifying or rationalizing. It's the tendency to create a myth or to use irrational reasoning to justify sinful or harmful actions. It's the thought that life has no meaning, so now I can justify any destructive action that I want. And we see this throughout this chapter. The entire congregation is holy, and so we can choose our own leader. You brought us out of a land of milk and honey. You brought us out here to seize full control over us. The actions with the incense and more. We find all sorts of justifying and blame-shifting going on here, and it follows the pattern of the stages of grief. And we're not done here. There are two stages yet to go, and we will see them brought to light in next week's Parsha. And so, next week, we'll focus a bit more on that process. So, to finish off, I would like to return to what I opened with. In Mark chapter 1, we read of the temptation of Yeshua. He had just been baptized, and the Holy Spirit had descended on him in the form of a dove, and a voice had spoken to him from the heavens, claiming him as Son. Just after these events we read this, Mark 1, 12-13, And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tried by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the messengers attended him. Yeshua was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit in order to be tried, and there were three things that attended him. Satan, who was to try him, angels, who were to attend him, and wild beasts, 
because this was their domain, their habitation. And in the wilderness, Yeshua was presented with three trials. The first was a trial of desire. He was fasting for 40 days, and on the final day of his fast, the devil came to him to tempt Yeshua with food. Take a rock and make bread. To which Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 in response. Next, there is a trial of pride. You are the son of God. Throw yourself from the temple. You won't get hurt because of the promises that have been made about you. God's angels will protect you. To which Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 in response. And finally, there's the trial of power. Simply bow to me, says Satan, and I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. To which Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 to overcome. Now we're all familiar with the story, but how many of us recognized before that these trials were characterized by wild beasts? And the trials were characterized by the traits of desire, pride, and power. The three trials of Numbers 11 through 13. The graves of desire, the pride of Aaron and Miriam, and their trust in the power of the nations over the power of God to seize power and to take control of nations. These are the qualities of the beasts. And it is in this chapter that we find all three of these motivations present in the actions of the rebels. Pride in verse 3, desire in verse 13 through 14, and power being the hoped-for result of this entire exercise. We find in the books of Daniel and Revelation mention of several beasts, and throughout the book of Revelation it is this beast that the dragon and the harlot ride as they come to power. The beast is in every case a system of government or power. It is the nations of the world that Satan claimed were within his power to give to Yeshua. And the system of the beast is characterized by many things, but they can be boiled down to just a few aspects, namely desire, pride, and power. You see, the beast system of Revelation, it's not a specific nation that we can identify today. It's a conglomeration of what we find happening in the world. And I'm going to make a case that's not going to be popular. It's one that might even be raged against by many. Can you think of a nation in which you can have all of your desires met? One where you have only to click a button and your desire is fulfilled nearly instantly? Or how about a nation where the inhabitants take pride in simply being a citizen? One where for decades and centuries it was a badge of honor throughout the world to come from this nation? One where we're taught to take pride in our individuality and even to take pride in our depravity? Or how about a nation that's extremely powerful, a nation that is able to project power wherever it wants, worldwide, without consequence, one that has a presence in nearly every nation on earth? Or how about a nation that chooses its leaders based on what the people want? And leaders are chosen because they will fulfill the will of the people. And the leaders constantly promise that if you choose them, they will lead you to a proverbial promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just choose me and I will lead you there. Now, I'm not just picking on my home nation of the United States. There are many nations that fulfill this criteria to one degree or another. 
just as there have been many nations that have fulfilled these criteria throughout the ages. The Roman Empire contained all of these features, the Ottoman Empire as well, the British Empire as well. I could sit here and name off nations and empires from various epochs for some time, and each would conform to these criteria. Because this is the nature of the beast. Now, I often hear teachers compare the beast system to oppressive forms of government that slaughter millions in politically motivated actions. But what about the nation that slaughters millions in the simple name of convenience? No political motivation, simply the motivation of not having to want to deal with the various pressures of being a parent. Which nation is more evil? North Korea, where the evil is out there in the open, or America, where the evil is shrouded under the legalese of rights and duties? You see, it was Korah's band that accused Moses of being the oppressive government. Number 1613. Is it little that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you would also seize total rule over us? They accused Moses of being the dictator that was killing off the people of God. Thousands had died under Moses' leadership. He killed off entire families and religiously motivated attacks on his fellow countrymen. At least, that was the accusations that were being leveled against him. These are the very accusations that we like to make as we point to other nations and leaders of both past and present. These accusations were used to point to Moses as the reason why the people needed a democratically elected government. I mean, after all, he restricted their worship, there was no religious freedom, and he held back things that would have given comfort and made their life easy. Now, I'm definitely not saying that the United States is the beast of revelation. I'm not saying that Europe or Russia or China or any other nation on earth today is that beast. What I am saying is that we cannot be putting our trust in our governments. Every government of man is controlled by the beast. Satan himself admitted it when he offered the nations to Yeshua. Every nation is characterized by the beast's nature because the beast is within us. We are, each one of us, beasts when we are born. We should only put our trust in Hashem, and that is all. He will guide the nations as a horse is guided by a bridle, because they are the beast. You see, the beast system is not necessarily characterized by paganism or atheism, as we like to claim. At least, not at first. At first, sometimes, it looks like it worships Hashem, that it's a Christian nation. Sometimes, at first, the beast appears pious. It's only later that the truth is revealed. One example that we can find in Scripture is Israel under King Solomon. Yes, a great and wise man, a man of power and pride and comfort. A man who made Israel great in the world, a true world power. And yet in the end, the Israelite system took on the aspects of the beast. To the point of allowing pagan temples and sacrifices to be accomplished within sight of the temple of Hashem. To the point of using slave labor for the building of the temple and the palace. To the point of acting contrary to every single command of the Torah that was directed to the kings of Israel. 
Solomon laid the groundwork for the beast system to take over even Israel. But to begin with, Solomon was wise, and he was understanding. But in the end, the temptations that Yeshua faced in the wilderness got to him. And these temptations get to each of us if we are not equipped with the Spirit of God to resist. I mean, who doesn't want to have their desires fulfilled? Who doesn't think highly of themselves because Hashem is with us? Who doesn't rejoice in the exercise of power, even when used righteously? Luke ten seventeen through 20 And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Master, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling out of the heavens like lightning. See, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and on scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and none at all shall hurt you. But do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice, because your names have been written in the heavens. You have power, and you are using it righteously, but do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in that you have been given power. Satan was given power, and his fall was like lightning. You see, we all have a mark on us, a mark that is on our hands and a mark that is on our foreheads. For the people of Hashem, that mark is the commands of Hashem. We say it every week. We say it every day in the Shema. You shall bind them on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. But there's another mark that we can have on our hands and our forehead. A mark that says 666. And what is six? Six is the number of man, but it's also the number of the beast. The mark of the beast for many is not a literal mark. Will it be one day? Perhaps it will. But a person can have the mark of the beast even now. It simply demands that we forget about God and what he has done. and We begin to trust in our own power our own thoughts directed by our own desires, finding pride in ourselves and our humanity, even our proximity and usefulness to Hashem. You see, we all have the beast inside of us, and it is our nature to succumb to the beast, to allow the beast to take control and to run our lives. And when we do, we have the mark of the beast in our thoughts on our forehead in our actions, on our hands. The beast is within our governments. It is within our institutions. But that is only because the beast is within each of us. And it is the experience of the wilderness that allows us to put the beast to death, to defeat that base nature and replace it with the nature of a man. Not a modern man, but a man as we were created to be in the garden. Man as exemplified in the son of man. True new creation within our hearts and minds. The beast is within us, and the beast will be defeated on the grand scale one day. But before then, we have the opportunity to slay the beast within. To take part in this battle. And it is the wilderness that gives us the opportunities to do this work.
destroying the beast, it is a necessary part of truly seeking life. So Dereshchai in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom.